You're listening to the Hayek Program podcast. This podcast includes audio from lectures, interviews, and discussions from scholars and visitors of the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. To learn more about the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. To learn about graduate student fellowship opportunities with the Mercatus Center at George Mason University, for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. Hello, welcome to a Hayek Program podcast. I'm Lawrence H. White of the George Mason University Economics Department and the Mercatus Center's F.A. Hayek Program in Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics. And today I'll be talking to David Beckworth, who is editor of a book entitled Reflections on Alan H. Meltzer's Contributions to Monetary Economics and Public Policy. How are you today, David? Great. Thank you for having me on. Uh, David, you do a lot of interviews on your podcast. That's right. Macro Musings. Check it out if you haven't already. So today the interviewer becomes the interviewee. Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so the book is a collection of essays reflecting on, honoring... Uh, Alan H. Meltzer's contributions to monetary economics and public policy. How did this uh, volume come about? Well, it actually begins in 2016, in November. I actually did a live show of the podcast you just mentioned, my own show, Macro Musings, and we had Alan Meltzer. It was at the Southern Economic Association meetings, and we set it up where we interviewed him in front of a live audience. It went it went really well. In fact, it, the last chapter in the book is a transcript from that. And in fact, I was pleasantly surprised. I'll be frank with you. I thought he was maybe going to be old, maybe a little. Well, he was old. He was old. I thought he might have lost his edge a bit. I'll say that. But man, he was spunky. He was sharp. He was funny. He was a really engaging guest. And people afterwards came and said the same thing to me. And so that happened in November 2016. I really enjoyed that. And then soon after that, early. 2017, he passed away, and uh, we started thinking it'd be great if we could do kind of a some kind of conference to commemorate his work, his life work, because a lot of people don't appreciate kind of you know the money view of, of of economics, and so we thought it'd maybe great to do that. So we organized a conference that came together in January 2018 on the margins of the American Economic Association meetings in Philadelphia, brought together a number of, of people who contributed and talked about it. Um, I'll mention just a few of them here, if that's okay. So we had uh, what would be the last maybe monetarists that are out there today, but but people who, who appreciate his work. Uh, Michael Bordo, economic historian, Bob Hetzel, Peter Ireland, Robert Lucas was there. Now, n- not in the book, Edward Prescott was also there, and he had some things to say from the audience. He was also a big fan of um, Meltzer as well. But Charles Plosser, Jim Buller from St. Louis Fed was there, Ed Nelson, a number of other folks were there as well. John Taylor's in the chapter. He wasn't there. But we got together and we... we George Selgin. George Selgin. I'm sorry, George, you're there too. And, and Jerry Driscoll. And we had this conference. We broke it into three different sessions. One session was on Ellen Meltzer's contributions to the history of, of monetary economics, the history of the Fed, to be more precise. And then their second session was on the transmission mechanism uh, monetary policy work that he did, and finally, Ellen Meltzer's contributions to public policy in general and kind of his his efforts towards promoting capitalism and free markets. So in a nutshell, uh, who was Alan Meltzer? I mean, in particular, I'm, I need to get this in, where did he study? Who was his dissertation advisor? 
Well, Carl Bruner, who he ended up working with later in his career, was his chair, his main teacher at UCLA. And they worked together there, and he got his dissertation there. And then he went on. They did many things together. Um, Alan Meltzer is part of the famous Monitor's Counter-Revolution. So it's kind of a, a tag team. You had on one hand, you had... On one hand, you had Milton Friedman and Andrzej Schwartz. They provided the empirical firepower. On the other hand, you had Alan Meltzer and Carl Bruner. And what they did, their big contribution, I think were, the main one was that they provided theoretical motivation for the transmission mechanism. But on top of that, I think they also did a lot of work on this front in terms of, of creating the, the mediums and the, the outlets for the work. So they organized this Carnegie-Rochester Public Policy Conference, which still goes on to today. It's once a year. They bring in big speakers. And they also organized, particularly Carl, the, the Journal of Monetary Economics. That was something that he started. Um, so Monetarist Origins, very far from that today. Um, they also c created the Shadow Open Market Committee. So they did a lot of work both on the theory, but they were also very intentional about making it accessible to a wider audience. So you, you placed Meltzer within the uh, monetarist uh, camp. How would you compare him or rank him against other well-known monetarist contributors like Lucas, Harry Johnson, David Laidler, Bennett McCallum? Well, that's a great list of names there. I guess the timing is, is the key thing. So again, he, along with Carl Bruner and then Milton Friedman and Jay Swartz, they were pivotal, I think. They were probably the main forces fighting the monitor's counter-revolution. I mean, David Laidler was around the same time as well. Bennett McCollum kind of comes into that discussion as well. But these were the people, you know, in the 60s who were writing articles in in mainstream journals. I mean, Alan Meltzer has a prominent article in the journal Political Economy in the 60s. Robert Lucas mentions this in his contribution to this book, as well as many other pieces. And, and I think they were the, the, the catalyst that really pushed back against the Keynesian kind of stranglehold on the profession, as you know well, better than I do, <laughs> Harry. I mean, money wasn't taken seriously before this point, and they at least not in the mainstream. I, I know there's many other economists outside the mainstream who took it seriously, but they're the ones who really brought it back to the front and, and center part of mainstream macro. And his role, his key role, was expounding upon the transmission mechanism channel. He really thought long and hard about money demand, um, what drives it, and, and would, you know, got into the modeling aspects of it. And so he completed the puzzle that Milton Friedman and Anna J. Schwartz had started. Why do you think uh, Meltzer or Bruner and Meltzer didn't win the Nobel Prize in economics? Oh, that's a good question. I don't know the answer. If I had to take a guess, I would say underappreciation of their work. And again, he, lifetime of work. He had over 300 articles, 12 books. He started all these heavily cited. Heavily cited. He, he started all these outlets I mentioned earlier. Um, he was a pivotal force in changing the conventional view that money matters. Now, today, you know, the main model that most economists, most central bankers think of is a new Keynesian model, some kind of Phillips curve in there. But even that has has echoes, has, has part of the monetarist counter-revolution embedded in it, where the central bank is doing most of the counter-cyclical work. That's a, that's a relic. That, that's a, a, uh, an inheritance from the work that they did. 
So to some extent, I think that's a great point. They are as deserving as anyone, given their long-lasting influence on the profession. What's the most distinctive part of the Bruner-Meltzer model as contrasted to the Keynesian models of its day? And where did it really yeah. break from the status quo? Well, we have three chapters, actually, in the book that talk about this. So let me just talk about the, the Bruner-Meltzer model for a minute here. Um, wh one of the big differences is that it views monetary policy much more broadly than the expected path of interest rates. So the kind of the new Keynesian perspective is the Michael Woodford, you know, good old-time religion, new Keynesian <laughs> approach is you look at the expected path of the federal funds rate or whatever the target rate is and compare that to the expected path of the neutral rate. And the gap between that is whether policy is being too tight or too easy. And Brunner Meltzer, they said, no, no, monetary policy works through a wide range of assets. That's too narrow of a perspective. And their model they built up reflected that. They wanted a broad range of assets to be reflected when the Fed did its monetary injections. In fact, there's a great quote in the book. I, I want to read briefly here that illustrates this. Let me use his own words here instead of me trying to describe it. But he's responding to what he thinks is too narrow a view of the transmission mechanism as, as defined by the new Keynesian perspective, and he says this is from a 1995 piece. He goes, to a monetarist economist, this view of the transmission mechanism, the new Keynesian view, is overly restrictive and mechanical. A monetary impulse that alters the nominal and real stocks of money does more than change a single short-term interest rate or borrowing costs. Monetary impulses change actual and anticipated prices on a variety of domestic and foreign assets. Intermediation, the term structure of interest rates, borrowing and lending, and exchange rates respond. The use of a single short-term interest rate is a poor metaphor for the classical response of relative prices following a monetary impulse. So he viewed things much differently than, again, kind of the, the Woodford view of monetary policy. And he had a model for that, as you mentioned, the Brunner-Metzl model. There's, there's a real nice, simple version of it he's written. has. It has a money market and a capital market in it. There's a more sophisticated one with equations in some of his, his articles. Um, but they really do stress a wide range of assets being affected. Interestingly enough, Ben Bernanke, when he was trying to justify or motivate the portfolio balance channel, invoked their work along with some other old Keynesians and Tobin. Very different views, but but if you look at what they say, you, you can see they're, they're telling a a monetarist version of the portfolio balance channel, which you know I think was maybe incorrectly invoked to justify what Bernanke was doing with QE. But there is this, again, the, the big point is a broader range of assets responding to monetary policy than just the simple overnight interest rate. So I learned my monetarist economics from Michael Darby at UCLA, who was a student of Friedman and Schwartz, well, of Friedman directly. And Bruner and Meltzer is different from that strand of monetarism in bringing in capital markets and a wide array of assets. Because in the Friedman-Schwartz transmission mechanism, which they only set out a decade after the monetary history, interest rates are just don't go anywhere. There's a, there may be movements in interest rates, but they don't hook up to the business cycle. They don't affect labor markets, which is where all the action is. And this channel working through asset prices uh, is just neglected. So it's a much richer story about the transmission mechanism than you get in Friedman and Schwartz. Well, that's interesting. And it's also interesting that I think the discussions people have today are kind of coming full circle back to this view. 
you know, that, that all asset prices should be looked at when you think about the effect of monetary policy um, much broader than maybe just looking at inflation or, at, you know, again, this expected path of interest rates overnight. Is there uh, what's left of the monetarist school today or of the influence of Meltzer on theoretical and empirical research? Well, I think indirectly, there's a huge influence, and this comes out in the history chapters. Um, their thinking is why, their influence, the, again, the monitor's counter-revolution is why we today, I think, have central banks playing such an important role as opposed to the old Keynesian view where fiscal policy should be the dominant tool. That, that part is with us and maybe with us for a long time, although there's a lot of talk now about more monetary policy, fiscal coordination going on. But I think that's probably their biggest legacy is monetary policy became the main countercyclical tool if you're going to employ that uh, approach to the business cycle. Other than that, there are a, a few practitioners <laughs> out there. Um, there are people like Peter Ireland, Michael Longio, my good friend Josh Hendrickson, and what they have done is, you know, they still take money seriously. Um, they've done everything from working with better measures of money. So there's the Vizia money measures. William Barnett may be also someone you could look at as continuing this tradition where you, you got to measure money better than simple sum aggregates. And if you do that, you get a, a story that looks more like what you know Meltzer and Bruner told. That, that's one area of, of maybe work you see being done. And these are serious economists. A another track that would push us down that avenue might be the monetary search models which could also view, be viewed as you know, you know second third generation <laughs> um, legacy of, of these monetarists where they're looking at ways to make exchange and money specifically more serious in models kind of the, the standard models we use don't take money seriously they don't take exchange seriously there's a Volrasian auctioneer in the background that does all the heavy lifting um, you know I just interviewed on the show um, some prominent economists who work on these Hank models, which are heterogeneous agent New Keynesian models. So they're, I, I think, a big improvement over the standard New Keynesian model because they do now incorporate bigger and wider and richer transmission mechanism channels. But at the core, it's still a New Keynesian model. It doesn't have exchange taken seriously in it. Um, and so kind of the standard approaches is, you know, money and utility function, cash and advance constraint, all these approaches, they either assume money in a way that's trivial or they don't really motivate it in a way that really facilitates our understanding of money as a transaction asset. So I would say if the legacy today would be the monetary search models and maybe the monetary divisio work being done by folks like Ireland, Belongio, and Hendrickson. The approaches you mentioned today, uh, the theoretical attempts to have a role for money, are often institutionally antiseptic, whereas Bruner and Meltzer in their famous AER article, what was the title? I'm trying, I'm trying to find it in the list of their publications, but the list is so long it's hard to find. Money in a Theory of Exchange? Yes, I think so. Something like that. Yeah. Um, have a whole surrounding institutional understanding of why uh, exchange is difficult and how money overcomes frictions in the exchange process. And that's the background to why uh, there's a defined demand for money. Um, as opposed to 
taking a model, starting with a model in which money has no essential role and trying to find a role for it right. by imposing some arbitrary yep. restriction on exchange. Now, those monetary search models, just one more little thought on that. Most of the work that's been done on them, you look at them kind of in a static perspective. They aren't really done for business cycle purposes, which is, I think, one reason they haven't been wide yet. Well, let me be clear. Josh Henderson and I have been working on this. Some of your former students, Will Luther, I think Alex Salter have also worked on this. But taking these models and putting shocks onto them, making them so you, you can see the effect of a monetary policy shock. So there's work being done, but let me put it this way. The most prominent people working on them, you know, the folks who, Randy Wright, people like him, they use it more for a long-run perspective as opposed to what we might think is important. And that is, you know, stable money. Well, in the absence of stable money, what happens? You need kind of a short-run understanding of these models. Uh, in your introduction to the book, uh, you note that Melcher was a longtime advocate for monetary policy rules. Was there a particular rule that he favored? Uh, if so, what was it? Yeah, for most of his life, according to several of the authors in this book, particularly Edward Nelson's chapter, but Peter Arlen also touches on this. So Ellen Melcher's rule is that he would grow the monetary base is the difference between the growth in real GDP and velocity. So you think of the equation of exchange, simple setup, that would imply a stable price level. And what he would do is he'd take the average growth rate for real GDP and velocity over the three years, take that difference on a rolling average, and then have the base grow at that amount. Well, that sounds very much like Bennett McCallum's It does. It's very much like the only difference would be Bennett McCallum wasn't dead set on a stable price level. He wanted stable nominal GDP. But yeah, it was very much similar spirit. And only near the end did he begin to think more about interest rate rules. So I would say for most of his career, it was a monetary base. But by, by the end, and this is something Edward Nelson brings up, he was beginning to come around to an interest rate rule. And in 2015, in fact, he tested like a Taylor rule. Yeah. He, and it wasn't because he necessarily gave up on the base rule, but he, he came around to see that you could do adequate monetary policy with the interest rate rule. And that was what everyone was doing. So by 2015, he actually testified before Congress on behalf of the Form Act, which would have required the Fed to, uh, you know, to, to list a p particular rule and, and, and follow it, and if it didn't follow it, tell why it didn't follow it. But his support for this rule you know, revealed that he was becoming more open to interest rate rules by the end of his career. I found the uh, title of the article I was referring to. It's The Uses of Money colon, Money in the Theory of an Exchange Economy, and that's American Economic Review, December 1971, Okay. for those who want to do further reading. Let me mention one other thing about his rule. I think it's, it's useful, and this is something I came across for a paper I wrote a few years ago. He's very clear, and this actually goes back to our discussion of quantitative easing. Again, Ben Bernanke invoked his work with, with Carl Bruner when they, they go into great detail talking about the portfolios of households and businesses adjusting to a monetary shock. And it does somewhat sound similar to what, you know, Bernanke would describe in his story and somewhat similar to Tobin's story of portfolios adjusting. But one of the key differences is that, well, actually, I'd say two differences. One, Meltzer focused on the liability side of the central bank's balance sheet, the actual money, the base, or reserves initially. Whereas with QE, they're focused much more on the asset side, you know, 
messing with credit spreads, composition of assets that the Fed was holding. The other thing, though, that, that going back to this research I was mentioning earlier that I found is that they really took seriously the difference between a temporary increase in the monetary base that was understood to be temporary versus a permanent one. And that was key to their story. So if you read their transmission mechanism, they are very clear. This has to be permanent and expected by the public to be permanent. And a lot of the QE was either sold initially as it's going to be temporary or going to be sterilized. There was no permanent increase in the base that was beyond the demand for it. So they believe that for, you know, they believe in the quantity theory, but their understanding was it had to be an exogenous increase above money demand for you to see that kind of story to unfold. And that wasn't the case with QE. Uh, in his history of the Federal Reserve System, which is one of Meltzer's uh, great contributions, he says the Fed's behavior was the best. It had the best results when it followed more or less closely some kind of monetary rule. And he cites the period of the going in reverse chronological order, uh, the Great Moderation, the early 1950s, and early on in the 1920s. Uh, in the 20s, the Fed was constrained by the gold standard. And Meltzer comments, that's not the rule I would have chosen, but at least it was a rule. Why do you think Meltzer favored a fiat money rule over a gold standard? I'm not sure I can answer that definitively, but I can tell you what I heard him say once at a conference on this. He said that politicians, central bankers, everyone became aware that politically they had to focus on internal balance, not external balance. So in other words, his point was that politically it was just too hard to do a gold standard anymore because of the adjustments it would require if there were gold flows in and out of a country. And so for political economy reasons, you know, they focus more on maintaining some kind of domestic-based rule. And I think, I think that was a pragmatic answer from him. So if I had to speculate, maybe he's just being pragmatic. He didn't think it, it, you could do it again. And he may be wrong, but that was my sense from what he said. What do you think? Well, when I heard Friedman talk about this, he would say, or read, read what he had to write about it, he said that... Uh, if the objective is to have the monetary stock or the money base follow a path that will produce the best outcomes, then we need to be able to control it. And the gold standard okay. is a source of disturbance because money flows in from abroad and the Fed can't control the monetary base, therefore. So I'm, my first own, personally, my first own interaction with Meltzer was at a Cato monetary conference uh, where we had a disagreement about the gold standard, and then we had some correspondence about it. And what did he, did he give you any insights? So was it was it pragmatic, like I said, or was it more theoretical, like Milton Friedman? It was that uh, this is not the rule you would choose if you were sitting down to design a monetary system. Uh, so, huh. but uh, Friedman later came around to the view that you know I'm not going to be the one who gets to sit down and decide the system, <laughs> right. so that. Anything that constrains monetary policy is better than a system where experts are in charge because experts aren't going to follow a rule. And I don't know whether Meltzer came to that viewpoint later. 
himself. But yeah, you say he was flexible on exactly what kind of rule. Yeah, at the end of his life, according to Ed Nelson's chapter, he became more open to an interest rate rule, though most of his time he favored a monetary-based rule. I had an interaction with Alan Meltzer via email long before this book or this conference took place, and I asked him about nominal GDP targeting. Um, some of you may know <laughs> I am a big fan of nominal GDP targeting. He said, look, as long as we get any kind of rule, I'll support it. <laughs> I just want more rules-based monetary policy. So I think maybe he was just being pragmatic again, just trying to, let's make some progress. Uh, you've already mentioned uh, monetary policy in recent years. Uh, what was Meltzer's take on quantitative easing programs after the Great Recession? Well, in the interview I did with him, which it's in the book, it's also online, you can listen to it, he was not a fan at all of it. He he thought it was too much discretion, wasn't rules-based. And and this is one area where he was very wrong. He thought it would lead to high inflation, and he admitted as much. He, he, in fact, at the conference, you know, the interview at the conference, he told me, he goes, I was wrong, but I didn't recognize what pain interest and excess reserves would do to the demand for the base. So he admitted eventually that was a, a bad call, but I still think he was not excited about what it did. Now, Interestingly enough, in the book, both Peter Ireland and Ed Nelson make the case, if you take the Bruner-Meltzer model seriously, it does allow for something like QE in terms of the broad asset channels. Going back to what you mentioned about Ben Bernanke, they make the case at least that you could justify something like QE being done, um, but Meltzer himself never acknowledge that that I'm aware of. Something like QE being done without interest on reserves to sterilize yeah, its impact exactly. on... Okay. Yeah, well, then, so it, then it's just monetary expansion. <laughs> right. I, I think they would agree with that, that. In fact, I remember Peter Ireland saying, QE is nothing new. It's just, you know, it's just open market purchases. Now, what's being, what's new is the way the Fed's doing it. It's, it's, it's tied to an inflation target or the interest on excess reserves. And I, th I think, again, to go back to this permanent point, it sounds kind of academic, but a permanent one way to think about a permanent increase in the monetary base is it's going to lead to a permanent rise in the price level, all else equal. So if you're going to do QE the way that I think Meltzer would have prescribed, he probably would have tied it to a price level versus an inflation target. But I, I'm speculating here. Um, but they, they definitely read into his work some flexibility, even though he himself was a little more skeptical in his own words with regards to QE. Yeah, so the remarkable thing about QE is that it did not lead to the path of M1 or M2 deviating from the path it had been on. It did, It was not a monetary expansion in the sense of yep. putting more money in the hands of the public. And, and Bernanke would actually agree with that. He even said, he said, don't call this QE, call this credit easing. That's what he said, call this credit easing. In fact, he said, don't compare us to Japan. Japan 2001 and 2006, it was more in the spirit of monetarism. And I, th I think even today, the Abenomics program is much more kind of a monetarist feel to it than what the Fed did. The Fed was much more about Let's alter credit spreads, risk premiums. Let's, so it's all about the asset side of the Fed's balance sheet. So once you recognize, as we can see in retrospect, that there was a huge drop in the velocity of money between 2008 and 2009, then what you need to do to preserve nominal income stability is have a monetary expansion. 
And a QE with no monetary expansion is not going to fix the problem of an excess demand for money. And in practice, it didn't. Exactly. As people who are familiar with my work will know, I've been critical of QE because it, it didn't deliver a great recovery. I think people can make the case that QE1 was the government trying to backstop markets, and maybe that had some impact. It wasn't done in a rules-based manner, but I think in, in that case, you can make a stronger argument. But QE2, QE3, it's not clear to me that they had much effect other than lowering yields on 10-year treasuries some. Um, and, and, you know, the, the proof is that we didn't have a robust recovery. I mean, it, nominal income, inflation didn't take off, so... Money velocity was still depressed. Well, take off. They didn't even recover the path they had been on. Right. In uh, John Taylor's contribution to this volume, uh, he notes that Meltzer attributes bad Fed policies to two basic reasons. One, politicians interfering with the Fed. So in that sense, the Fed is not initiating the bad policy, but it's being pressured into it. But secondly, mistaken beliefs about policy at the Fed. So in the early period of the Fed, the Fed following the Real Bills Doctrine, in later years, the Fed following Keynesian Doctrines. Uh, but there's another approach, and a week ago, you and I were at a book manuscript conference where the fundamental critics of the Fed, uh, this is a, a book in progress by uh, our own Peter Betke, uh, Alex Salter, and uh, Dan Smith, uh, they were stressing inbuilt knowledge problems. That is, you shouldn't expect the Fed to have correct beliefs and timely information about what they need to do to avoid disturbing monetary equilibrium in the economy. And secondly, the Fed has incentive problems, which is, I guess, a more general version of the Fed is subject to pursuing the wrong agenda, whether from outside pressure or from its own bureaucratic uh, prerogatives. Uh, but did Meltzer recognize those fundamental problems, or did he want to keep the discussion on the level of the mistaken beliefs and political interference? I think the latter, that would be my sense, is that, yeah, the outside meddling and, and just not having a good model of the economy as opposed to some of the other challenges you just raised— um, you know, my, my own thoughts on this, if I can kind of segue into this, is that to some extent the Fed was following a rule, low inflation. That was their rule to some extent. They kept inflation relatively stable. Uh, now, they officially began inflation targeting in 2012, but there's been several studies that show that by the early to mid-90s, they were effectively targeting a low and stable inflation rate. And so I would make the argument that it's not just about a rule, it's about the right rule. You can have rules that lead to terrible outcomes, and I think targeting inflation can work sometimes, but when you have supply shocks, this is borne out by what we saw in 2008. There was a big increase in the demand for commodities, so the supply effectively um, dried up for many people around the world, and so inflation temporarily accelerated, and the Fed was thinking about tightening in 2008. It, they sat on their hands for a period between April and October, and over it, in Europe, they actually did raise interest rates. And then in 2011, the ECB actually did raise interest rates twice for the same reason. And you, you could argue the ECB's been one of the best rule followers when it comes to low inflation, but it's the wrong rule. So they have a more explicit inflation rule than, 
happened. The Fed, it's in their constitution. Yeah, yeah it is. And so, so, well, I shouldn't say explicit. There's no number in the constitution. It's it's close to just below. But they early on said, yes, we're committed to inflation under two percent before the Fed. Yeah, and and you know, the Germans are well known for being inflation hawks. So implicitly, there's this rule. Even if it's not stated explicitly, they're going to keep inflation low. And, and you know what we're kind of beating around the bush here is that the nominal income targeting would have been better. So you can have a rule, but it better be the right rule. There's another institution that Meltzer uh, wrote and thought and was important in trying to reform, and that was the uh, International Monetary Fund. So Meltzer, through a process that's alluded to in the or described in the book, uh, ended up being the chair of a committee to investigate the IMF and suggest reforms, and that was a, can I use the word quid pro quo, <laughs> for Republicans in Congress agreeing to uh, expand the IMF's budget. Uh, so the Meltzer Commission met uh, for several months. Meltzer was the chairman. There were Republican members and Democratic members. Uh, the Republicans had a one-vote majority. Uh, and it's an interesting discussion in, in the book. Uh, Jerry O'Driscoll, who was his chief of staff on that commission, writes about it. Uh, the Meltzer Commission did not end up advocating retiring the IMF or winding down the IMF or liquidating the IMF, even though the IMF was founded to maintain the fixed exchange rate system under Bretton Woods, which ended in 1971, <laughs> yet the IMF stays in, in place with a new mission. Uh, why do you think they advocated narrowing the IMF's mission rather than doing away with the IMF? I guess we can invoke public choice here. <laughs> you know, it's, it's an institution that, that many other countries value, and the U.S. as, you know, a global policeman is... is, is a responsible leader of international order wanted to maintain that institution, even if it wasn't a big return to the U.S. directly, other than, you know, even if it weren't the case, but if it, it led to increased stability elsewhere in the world, and we can argue whether it did or not, maybe it increased, you know, financial problems overseas. But I think that's probably more of what it was about. I mean, the IMF, it was the IMF and the World Bank, I believe. Yeah. And, you know, th those institutions are important to... Um, the, what was then the G7 countries. I, I used to work at Treasury International Affairs, and that was kind of one of the things we, we dealt with. And and the U.S. was the effective decision maker on many of these decisions. Now, I think it's less so today with China and other countries being added to it. Well, the U.S. still gets to appoint the head of the IMF. Yeah. But when it comes to approving funding for certain projects, like should we go bail out Argentina again, you, you know, the U.S. did have an inordinate influence on the committee. So I think part of it might just be the ability for the U.S. government to maintain its reach, but also to be seen as a good global citizen. But I'm speculating here. I, I don't know. But I, I t what is interesting about that story, though, is that he was able to get a report that both sides supported. Well, that's right. Even if all the Republicans supported abolition of the IMF, then it would have been a very partisan report because none of the Democrats would have yeah. supported it. Whereas they got much bigger than one vote majority on, on what they did recommend. Right. So th there was some progress made, not maybe what you know the ideal would have been, but they made some progress and they got you know, Democrats and Republicans to support it. 
So we can say that uh, Meltzer was pragmatically minded. Is that fair? That's coming through this conversation on many levels, from his rules to his engagement. I, I, w I guess that story there was probably the most insightful about who he is as a person. He seems to be pragmatic when it comes to dealing with people, politics. He wants to get something done. He'll work through it. Um, don't yeah. let the perfect be the enemy of the yeah, good. Yeah, I, I think so. I think that's one of the, the high compliments you can say about him. In addition to all his amazing work, when it came to policy, he was very active. I mean, in the book, we, we highlight how he was an advisor to many central banks. He advised the, the, the Treasury Department. So he was engaged very actively in the policy world, and I, th I think he had a good sense of what battles he should fight, what hills to die on. Okay. Well, is there anything else you want to say about the volume that we haven't covered? I think we've done a good job. Just to encourage listeners out there to get a copy, um, read it. And again, as you mentioned earlier, he— It is an easy read. Yeah. It's, it's not very long, and the, each chapter is only five or six pages. Right. And it's written in a very conversational style, I guess, because they were presentations at a conference yep. initially. Yep. yep. And again, as you mentioned earlier— his influence is huge and worthy of probably a Nobel Prize. So you want to take a look at this work it, just to be familiar with someone who's been so influential. And I will add one last thing. We have the best bibliography of his work thanks to some hard work of our research assistants at the Mercatus Center. All right. Thank you, David. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Hayek Program podcast. To learn more about the research, scholars, and work of the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. For more information about graduate student fellowship opportunities for students at Mason, as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. We hope you recommend students to our programs or consider applying yourself.